Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in we are. I want to know something she's on. I think about everyone you need. I hold in it, things are real now. I have you seen you wanting you. Hey. It's her ratio. Okay, though. It's her ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. When I played her, it was a big, like, psychological psych out almost, where it was like, you know, I'm playing Serena. So when I would typically stand, you know, maybe three feet behind the baseline, I'm standing six uh, because, you know, I'm like, I know that she hits a big ball. I know that it's going to be coming fast. So I need to give myself time and I need to give myself space so that I can, I can swing. So off the bat, I was adjusting. Is it harder than you? Is it harder than everybody else's ball? Not necessarily, but her accuracy is, is like pinpoint spot on. And that was the thing that I felt like in the, the, I mean, for sure the serve by far, like on the women's storage, it's the hardest serve that I've returned. All you guys who know me know that I'm all about tennis. I try to have tennis players on this show as much as I can. And today it's an honor and a treat to have a current WTA star, Taylor Townsend, who has been in the top hundred She's been away from the game for a little bit because she got pregnant. She had a baby. The baby's almost a year old. And this year she is preparing to get back on the court. This is a woman who has played Serena Williams, who has beaten Simona Halep, who was number one in the world as a junior. So I was excited to talk to her about strokes, about serving and volleying, about what you think about when you're on the court, about all the little things that goes into the mind and the game of a, of a professional tennis player. It's an honor and a pleasure to talk to her. Let's go. It's Taylor Townsend on Touré Show. You're a new mom. Baby's about 11 months old, and his birthday's a couple of days ahead of mine, so he's a Pisces. Very good there. But you... um. It's been a minute since you've been on the court. So how mm-hmm. cl- how close are you to being able to get back into a tournament? Oh, man, I'm close. Um, I'm hoping to play my first WTA event in Charleston at the beginning of April. So that was like the target, you know, time. Um, but I'm really close. Honestly, um, physically, I feel great. Um, probably in the best shape I've ever been in. and. Um, healthy mentally. I'm excited to be back on the court. So, you know, all the components are coming together, just need to kind of, you know, finalize my schedule. Um, everything is kind of still a little bit thrown off with COVID, not the typical, you know, tournament schedule that you would normally have. So trying to finalize those things and figure out how I can play, you know, tournaments in a row, weeks in a row. But yeah, so early April is the, is the date. It's kind of amazing that as a new mom, you're now in the greatest shape you've ever been in. Cause it's, it's hard to rebound 
um, as a mom, as somebody in your later 20s than in your early 20s? Um, how do you how do you get back to the bet or how do you get to the greatest shape of your life when, you know, your body is still adjusting to having done the most important thing that it has ever done in your life? Well, I'm still technically in my early 20s. So let's just put that out there. <laughs> true, true, true. Um, it seems like I'm old because I've been on tour for 10 years. But I'm, I'm not. I'm only 25. So I got time. But I mean, honestly, it's just been kind of a step-by-step journey. Um, I kind of had worst case scenario when it comes to, you know, having, you know, giving birth, having have a C-section. So, you know, I didn't really plan for that. So that kind of set back the time frame because, you know, my body had to heal. I've never had major surgery before. So it was definitely kind of a adjustment period and on a lot of different facets because I've never had to like be dependent on other people to do stuff for me you know, I couldn't like get up out of my seat by myself, you know, where I've always been self-sufficient and independent, where it's like kind of a huge shift. So, um, that was kind of the worst case scenario, but I, I healed very well, you know, and just kind of built up to, um, getting back on court and being strong. And that was the great part about, you know, my trainer having the understanding of, you know, okay, this is a, this is a journey. It's not like we have to do everything very quickly. So we started, you know, let's just walk. Let's see how far you can go. Okay. Let's speed it up a little bit. Okay. Let's see if you can do this. Let's see if you can do that. And just started, just kept building, um, on those things. So yeah, but it's, it's honestly just been a step-by-step journey, kind of a change in my mindset of kind of accepting that this is part of it. This is part of the journey. I've never been away from the game for this long. Um, so just other elements outside of the tennis court that have changed and shifted, you know, mostly between the ears, but you know, it's amazing. I can't wait to get back out on court. Well, when you say what's changed between the ears, do you think that you will be a stronger player now having become a mother and having something else to live for? Absolutely. I mean, it's been a total shift in my mindset, honestly, and just, in my viewpoint of life in general, like, you know, I've been playing this sport since I was four. I've been playing tennis since I was four years old. I've been traveling on my own since I was 11. So like I've been in this world for so long. So it can be at a point where you dedicate all your life, all your time, your energy, mental, physical, emotional to this game and giving everything that sometimes you can lose perspective of like the important things and things outside of the sport. And for me, like, having my son has just given me that perspective of like, there's something bigger. There's more life to live outside of tennis. You know, I'm not defined as being a tennis player. You know, this is something that I'm good at that I enjoy and that I love to do, but I'm not defined by being a tennis player. Like I'm more than that. And now, you know, I'm a mom to an amazing baby boy, you know, I'm a friend, I'm a sister, you know, and it's kind of helped me being away from the game has helped me kind of outline and define those areas a little bit more because I was forced to be away from the game. I was forced to kind of take a step back, which I've never had to do. Um, so yeah, it definitely has given me a different perspective and something to play for outside of myself. I mean, you know, you can have that self-motivation and that self-drive, but when you have somebody else looking at you and, you know, doesn't matter if you win, if you lose, if you play like or not, you know, like they don't care, you know, it's just as long as you come back, you know, there's a smile on their face and and that's what's the most rewarding for me. 
um, you know, coming back from practice and training every day. I'm tired, but you know, he's there and I'm excited. Like I get a, another burst of energy. So like I said, I just can't wait to get back on the court to kind of implement and see how I, how I play and how I feel when I get back out there. Uh, what do you love about tennis? Ooh, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a loaded question. I mean, for me, tennis has always been, um, it's been a release. It's been something that I've gone to and it's been something therapeutic for me that I've gone to when times are hard in my life. It was something that was consistent that I could lean on and that felt normal. It felt like something that I could always control. And, you know, I like that because when I stepped inside of the gates, when I grabbed my racket, when I grabbed the balls, like nothing outside of the court mattered. And I love that because it, it was a way for me to kind of separate myself from everything else that was going on. And, you know, even to this day, you know, with having my son, it's hard to kind of turn off that mom mode. Once you get in it, it's hard to turn that off. But now being back on court, it's teaching me that I'm able to, I have to shift my mind and be able to focus on myself and what I have to do and what I'm trying to accomplish on the court. So it's kind of making me be more selfish. Um, but you know, I love the game. It's always been that for me. It's been a release has been something that's emotionally um, kind of relaxing in a way, even though it's very stressful and it's like a sport that just messes with your brain and it makes you irritated on so many different levels. <laughs> um, but also the, the thing that I love the most is the competition. Like it, that's what kind of gravitated me to, I love team sports, but I would never, like I didn't do well in them because it's like, I am so hard on myself. So I love that like one-on-one -on -one battle where it's just like, it's me versus you, my strategy versus your strategy. Let's go at it. You know what I mean? And um, that's what I've always, that's what attracted me to the game. And that's always what's been so fun to me where it's like, you know, you're kind of battling against the other person. They're trying to do something to you. You're trying to do something to them. And we're just playing tug of war. I love that answer. And I also want to see if we can get more granular with it because I know like you know I play every day and if something happens where I don't get to play on a given day um the next time I get out and as soon as I meet the ball cleanly you know and make top spin and I'm like yes you know <laughs> it, it's like that moment in and I think it was old school when Will Farrell drinks a beer after a long time and he's like as soon as it hits your lips it's like yes yeah. and I'm like <laughs> yes to like just come over the ball and it like loops and I'm like yes like just meeting the ball just feels so good you can and you feel it on the strings and like like is there something like like that sort of small for you that like just making contact or just hitting a great slice or like hitting the ball where you want it to go. Like something like that, that you're like, Oh, I like, I love that feeling. Yeah. And this is kind of, it's crazy that you're asking me that because this is a new sensation that I had that I'm having. Like I didn't have that before. It was more of like, I just have to hit a lot of balls. I have to hit a lot of balls. I have to like, I have to do this. You know, this is part of it. This is part of the process. This is part of it. But now I have more of the feeling that you're talking about where it's like when I step out on the court and I hit a shot a certain type of way, or I play a point a certain way and everything lined up how I wanted it to, like I saw it in my mind and then it happened. Like for me, that's like the most rewarding thing. And I'm like, yes, okay. I want to do it again. I want to do it again. And that's the, that's the challenging part about tennis because you win and lose constantly. 
You win a point, you lose a point. You win a point, you lose a point. And there is no other sport in which you deal with wins and losses that consistently and frequently throughout the course of the game. Um, you know, it's, it's more of, okay, you score, I'll score, but it's about the cumulative. Um, so that's the difficult part about tennis where you have to have such a short memory where even if you do play a great point, you have to forget about it. It's gone because you have to go on to the next and you have to play the next point. Um, so for me, like that's kind of been the new feeling that I've had where, you know, kind of challenging myself to have that consistency to do the right things and implementing the right techniques and the the right movement patterns and everything, every single time. And, um, it's incredibly hard, (laughs) but it's super rewarding because I know that every time that I do it and when I'm able to string those things together, like I'm getting better. So that's when I feel like I'm really, really making progress. I wonder, I wonder if you could take us inside your mind when you're playing an important match, because you talked about that amnesia that you have to have. Um, and I think you have to be, well, you want to be filling yourself with positive messages. Some players clearly get down on themselves because we do lose. We miss a lot. Um, but you, you, if you can be positive, even when you're missing, that will help you rather than drag you down. Um, I read something really interesting that Nadal said about enjoying the stress, the mental strain of it all. And Djokovic has said similar things about like, because I think the human mind wants to run from stress, wants to alleviate stress. And when you're in like, you know, a backhand rally and it's 30 all or 30, 40 or whatever, and you kind of were like, I want to get out of this. It's very stressful. And if you Mm -hmm. can be like, no, I, I will wallow in the stress. And if it takes, you know, a 20 shot point or 20 deuces to get through, then like you, you can be a better player, but that's all how you're perceiving it. If you enjoy the struggle, you're better off than someone's like, Oh my God, this is so hard. Why won't this person just go away? Um, yeah. so I, you know, but then those sort of that emotional maintenance is balanced out by, I wonder how much strategy are you doing? Are you saying I need to attack his or her backhand more or their backhand is steady. I need to be moving them or I need to be, I don't know what, like, so talk to me a little bit about what you're thinking as you're moving through a match. Well, it's constantly evolving. I mean, you have your base, you know, core concepts where it's like, I know that I do this well, I do this well. And, you know, as the match goes on with your opponent, you're obviously looking and seeing, okay, they don't like this or they don't like that. Or they do like this. So they do like that. So you're kind of adding these things into your memory bank and into your, you know, kind of your input. But like you said, I mean, the best players in the world do exactly what Nadal and Jokovic talked about, which is they wallow in the stress. Like they, and that's why when you are able, when you see them have the, shot discipline to be able to have 20, 25 ball rallies, 30 ball rallies multiple times in a row is because yes, this is stressful. Yes. This may be, I mean, even a different word boring where I'm just hitting cross, hitting cross, hitting cross. But I know that if I stay in this, that either my opponent is going to miss, or I'm going to have an opportunity to do what I want to do with the ball, but I'm setting it up. 
So if you're able to stay in that and have that mental fortitude to be able to kind of deal with those types of situations, then when you, when you're able to get in control, you know, then, then it's a piece of cake. And I think one person that does that really well now is Medvedev. And it was interesting in the Australian Open, he said, you know, I thought in this point in time, I thought, what would Novak do? What would Federer do? What would Nadal do? And that was very interesting to me because it's like, he's played these players before, but he knows like, that's what they do the best, which is they have that shot tolerance. They have that ability to just stay in it and to have the discipline to not miss and to not overplay. Um, I think that's a big thing, but yeah, I mean, you have your core things, you know, you're strategizing, you have your strategy that you go into the match with, but that can always change. You know, your opponent could be doing something totally different than what you strategize for. And you have to make the adjustments on the fly. And, and that's the cool thing about tennis as well. Like you're constantly having to adjust because in, you know, in a point from one point to the next, they can change something. Um, you can change something, you know, you could be hitting your forehand amazing and all of a sudden it's gone. So you have to make those adjustments constantly. Um, so I think that's, that's really important, but you know, everyone knows the phrase kiss, keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I heard that so much growing up. Oh my God. Yeah. So, I mean, like I'm a, I'm a severe overthinker. So like I have to make myself like, I have to keep things incredibly simple. So I've, I'm, and I'm learning these things, especially being off court and having the time to now really dive into my game um, and my tendencies. That's kind of been the thing. It's like, okay, we need to keep this as simple as possible because I will, you know, start overthinking and making things something that it's not. So let's keep it very, you know, basic. And um, other people are not like that. Other people can analyze, you know, overanalyze things and it helps. But for me, I just have to keep things incredibly simple. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. 
Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Do you remember the first time that you said, oh, I'm really good at this? And not in an egotistical way, but like something happened that you were like, well, damn, like I beat somebody way older than me. Like, damn, like I'm I'm like actually really good because you were number one in the world at 15 after mm-hmm. starting at four but you were already Boca Raton at like 10 or 11. Well, I had, I had went to camps and stuff, but no, I went to Boca when I was, um, I was t- 13 going on 14, no 14. I was 14. So w- did something happen when you were like eight, nine, 10 that you were like, Oh shit, I'm really good at this. <laughs> um, kind of. I mean, when we moved to Atlanta, cause I was live, we were living in Chicago. We moved to Atlanta and my parents were just like, my sister's two years older than me. So, you know, the age groups jump every two years. So she was two years. So if I was 10, she was 12, she was playing 12s. You're playing 10s. It's in two different places. This could be here and the other place. It could be in a totally different state. Was it your parents who said you guys are going to play tennis or was it you two who gravitated to, to it and made your parents take you to the lessons? No, my mom played and we were always running games. She played almost every day. Um, so she, we were around it constantly just, you know, when she would go to the park and we wouldn't even, sometimes we'd be on the court. Sometimes we'd go to the playground, but we were always around it. Was she good? Um, she, she thinks so. <laughs> <laughs> so she, li- she liked, it was like, she liked it. She like what, like a three, five, four Oh or something. I can't tell you. I don't even know what that ranking system is. And I don't, I don't want to big her up. So <laughs> Could yeah, she hit with? Could she hit with you now? Yeah, I'm sure. Okay, so she's so she's okay. So she's fine. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, like she can keep the ball in. Okay. Um, okay. But yeah, so I mean, it, it's I was always around the game, my sister, and then my sister started playing before I did, so she started getting lessons, and then I would just be around, and I was mad because I was like, why does she get to do stuff and I can't? So then I would go on the ball. I would go on the court and start like throwing balls at her and throwing balls at the coach because I was mad. Because if you, if I can't do it, you can't either. That's how, that's how I was. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how we got introduced to the sport. And, but we moved here and started playing a lot more events and tournaments and realized, okay, there's a separation. Like this tournament's here, this tournament's there. Like Taylor, you're going to have to play up. 
Like you're going to have to play the tournaments that your sister's playing because we can't afford nor have the time to be able to split. And we're in Georgia and then you got to go to Tennessee. Like we're not doing that. So we're going to be in one place. So I was kind of forced to level up and it wasn't, it wasn't a seamless transition. Like I was losing cause I was 10 playing against 16, 17 year old girls. Um, but as I just kept going and my coach at the time, he was very big on, you just need to keep playing matches. Like you're not about to be a great practice player. Like go play. We would play almost every weekend in like local tournaments or small events. Um, but needless to say, he always had us in tournaments and, um, yeah, that's kind of how I was forced to level up where I started playing. And then at, from at 12, I was winning like tournaments in the 18s. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like I can, I can compete with these, you know, once I got, and once I was in it and I started winning, I won a couple matches and then, you know, started going deeper in the tournaments and stuff. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like I can, I can do this. Like I can compete. And so that was kind of that shift there in that time frame, And then it kind of reverted when I started, got kind of on the ITF scene and started playing, you know, ITFs the and international you know, tournaments, international junior tournaments and stuff where I was like, I'm not really sure. You know what I mean? Like it was kind of like, Ooh, cause I, I wasn't having great results. I mean, I was doing amazing in doubles. Like it was winning everything. Every tournament I played pretty much we won doubles, but singles, I was really struggling a lot. And so I was like, uh, I don't really know if I'm cut out for this. Like, you know, I'm just really struggling. And once I kind of verbalized that, then everything changed <laughs> literally within a week. I went to a, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, ended up winning that tournament. That was my first ITF title. And that was maybe in October. And then went to Australia in January and won the Australian open in junior singles and doubles. And then everything after that, just totally, just, you know, turned around 360 for me. I want to talk about your game. Um, I want to, I want to see if you can answer this one question that, so that some of the guys I play with have, have batted about that. If we were to play somebody, you know, uh, uh, on the professional level, mm -hmm. what would happen if you and I were to play and not, not the, the man woman thing, but like, like you're a professional, right? Would it be that, pretty much every ball I hit to you, you would hit a winner off of because I could never challenge you? Or would it be that you would never miss because I can't make you miss and I would just be like, she she just never misses and, you know, I'm human and she's just not. <laughs> it's definitely not that. I mean, everyone makes, you know, unforced errors and mistakes and stuff. But first of all, I would just have, I would have to see you play. I have to see what you're working with first. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, no, but I mean, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a good person to ask because like, I've never been the kind of person where I've cared about who's on the other side of the court. And that's just how we were raised. And we were brought up and with my coaches growing up. They were like, it doesn't matter if there's whoever can be on the other side. Like that doesn't matter about what you're doing on your side of the court. So for me, like if you were on the other side, like I would just be trying to do what I could do to get a great practice, you know? So, um, you know, as a professional, you know, I've, I've warmed up at a pro tournament with an eight-year-old boy. This, that's a true story. Like <laughs> It was an eight-year-old kid. And I was like, I don't have anybody to hit with. Can you hit with me? Sure. Warmed up for my match. Boom. Went on my way. So, um, you know, as a, as a professional, you know, there's a certain level of competitiveness and, and almost ego that you have where it's like, 
you feel like, oh, you know, I'm not supposed to, I'm not supposed to lose to this certain type of person or whatever, but that type of mindset can get you caught up and it can, it can turn bad quickly. So, but one of the things that folks don't realize when watching from the stands or even less so when watching on television, there's the speed of the ball and then there's mm-hmm. the weight of the ball. And from the stand, yes. you cannot perceive the weight of the ball. And you may think, mm-hmm. okay, the ball's traveling at a certain speed. I could run to the corner, set up my feet, and hit that ball. But you don't realize the massive weight that your ball has that I would be feeling like I'm hitting the ball underwater and my forearm is throbbing from trying to return your ball versus mm-hmm. somebody who's you know, like a a college player who's not fully getting their weight into the ball and like making it like, like, you know, like it feels like steel, like a three pound ball versus somebody. So, you know, that, I mean, like, even if you're hitting with, you know, somebody who's not at your level, like you hit the ball just straight down the middle of the court, I'd still be struggling. Right. Cause like the ball is so heavy. Yeah. I mean, that, that's true. And like you said, you can't really perceive weight of shot. And, you know, some people, it can look like they're hitting, like they're not hitting that hard. I mean, Nadal, his ball has a ton of RPMs. But if you're looking and watching in the stands, you know, you can see it sometimes can land really short. But even though it's landing really short, it's rotating so quickly that it's hitting and it's coming at you. So it's very, or it's coming exactly up. So it's it's deceiving. Um, the game is deceiving. You know, people can look like they're doing certain things and it can be totally different when you're on the other side of the court. So you're totally right about that. Part of why I love watching you is that you serve in volley. And I grew up watching a tour where some people served in volleyed professionally and some people stayed at the baseline. And there was a variety of approaches to the game. And because of many reasons, virtually nobody serves in volleys anymore. You're a breath of fresh air for those of us who've been watching for a while. Um, tell me about how to serve and volley well on the professional <laughs> level. I, I'll try to sneak it in sometimes because people aren't expecting it. And it, it's just hard to even get close enough to the service line. You know, if you hit a good serve to get close enough to the service line to where you're hitting an effective first volley, right? I mean, that's that's half the battle, right? And to being quick from the baseline to that that middle spot, right, and hitting an effective volley. If you can do that, then you're in charge of the point. But if you can't do that, you're behind on the point. So talk to me about yeah. what, what you're trying what you're trying to do. Well, I mean, you got to start off with a lot of sprints. <laughs> um, you have to because you have to have a first, you know, quick first step. Like you said, if if you're too slow or you're not to your mark, then you can be picking the ball up at your shoelaces, and that's pretty much counterproductive to what you want. I mean, you want the volley to be in a certain spot um, pretty much every time, unless, you know, they hit a great return. So you definitely have to have that quick first step off of the serve after you land, because, you know, that bursts you into your position. So that's pretty much the biggest thing. And then I think, honestly, like I've always, I grew up, you know, Volley. Like I always loved being at the net versus my sister when we were growing up. She liked, you know, hitting as hard as she could from the baseline. I didn't like that. I wanted to be up at the net because I felt like I was in more control. So I think, you know, somebody who serves in volleys as well, it's a certain type of mindset. It's, it's almost a certain individual. It, it takes a certain type of personality because you have to be, it's almost like I'm in your face. I'm in your face constantly. You know, I'm coming constantly. So you have to have that sort of ability to 
you know, you can bluff it sometimes, but when, when the stress comes, like you said, you know, you'll crack because it's not true. Like you're not, you don't really want to be in their face. You're just doing it because the opportunity presented itself, you know? So there's a difference between like actually taking charge and then you, you know, just kind of taking the ball that was given, or even you set up the point well, and you get a short ball and you come in and, you know, there's a volley. It's annoying because um, I have to hit a really good return or the point is is over, right? I, yeah, I, can, I mean, if you're going to stay at the baseline, yeah, I can hit an okay return, but if you're coming yeah. in, I got to hit a good return or, you're, or you, got, you got me. Yes and no, because I mean, just as much as it is about the, the, for the, when you're serving volley, it's first about the serve. You know, if you don't hit the serve to the right spot, you can get it, give it to your opponent in their sweet spot and then they're in control. So, it, I mean, it even starts with the serve, but, you know, you can serve in volley and not hit your spot on the serve, not hit your spot on the movement, not hit your spot on the volley. And, you know, you're at risk because you're giving your opponent a lot of targets. Um, you know, the lob, the angles, you know, if you're not covering, they can pass in multiple different directions. So it's a lot that's going on in a very short period of time. And, and that's kind of the hard part because you have to see, you have to watch, you have to assess and you have to make a decision very quickly because you're shortening the court by so much. Um, obviously from the baseline, you have a lot more court, you have a lot more time to watch and see what's happening. So, um, yeah, I mean, my, my advice would just be start off with sprints and just, just keep, <laughs> keep going back and forth. <laughs> I think I, I came to the net when I played help 176 times. So just 176 sprints, we start there and then we just go from there. <laughs> so, so do you generally find it is more effective to serve down the middle and eliminate the angles or m minimize the angles or to serve out wide and you kind of, they, they kind of give away part of the court if they don't make a great, like which, which, which way is easier to serve wide and serve in volley or to serve down the middle and serve in volley? Well, honestly, it just depends. And like, I mean, we kind of touched on earlier, it just depends on what your strategy is and who you're playing. So it's kind of hard to give like a definite answer because, you know, some person might do well with balls in here and some, they might not like balls to the wings and other people might return better when they're on the stretch. Um, but don't do it well when the ball's coming to them. So it's that constant adjustment that you have to make in match and it could change as you're playing. So, you know, that's, that's the cool thing about the sport. Like I said, you have to constantly continue to adjust and a, a serve that could work in the first set, you know, after eight games, it's like, okay, I read it. I've seen it for eight games. Now it's not working anymore. Now you're getting passed. And then you have to change again. So it's a constant, you know, kind of ever cycling, you know, circle that you're in, in the sphere where it just keeps rotating. You have to continue to adjust. So, I mean, it's, it, like, it's a hard question to answer because like, it's not just one, one thing. It just depends on what your opponents. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals 
Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low-sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it, and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Strengths and weaknesses are, and also what your strengths are. Like, it, do you like serving wide? Do you serve better down the T? Do you serve better into the body? Because, you know, you want to do what you do well, like you want to play to your own strengths. So it just depends on what you do. Well, if you like a big body serve and come in, then, you know, that might be the best, you know, serve for you. But for me, maybe I like the lefty slice wide, you know, and use that angle. So it just depends, honestly. I see Shapovalov serves wide all the time. And even when you know it's coming, you're still in the doubles alley to start the point. So, I, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a step ahead of you. Give us the volley. Give us some, some, some advice on hitting great volleys. <laughs> it's all in these. Hands. This is the secret. No, I'm kidding. Um, I got but a little magic, but again. it's a but it's a soft hand, right? You don't, you, 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 you don't want to grip the racket <laughs> hard, right? Yeah, I mean, it just depends. Honestly, um, depends on where you're trying to hit the volley, what type of volley you're trying to hit. You know, when you're trying to stick it, you want to be a little bit firmer, tighter, because you're trying to get the ball deep. Um, you know, for me, people have always asked me, "How do you hit your touch ball?" And I'm like, I have no idea. It just happens, <laughs> like. <laughs> You know, I know what I want to do. And then I just like, so it's always been that way where it's like, I know what I'm trying to do. And then it's something I just do it with the racket to make it kind of, um, to make it happen. But the one thing I can say in terms of the like volley fundamentals is like, you know, you have to keep your backside down. That's the toughest part. You got to keep your butt low. Right. Work legs work the butt because you have to be you have to be beneath the ball pretty much you want to be lower than the ball so because otherwise you're leaning over and you don't have weight if your butt is down then your weight is properly behind the ball yeah and that's that's the goal you know weight transfer so if your butt is down then that can give you a good base to then i can't help you with all of this 
But at least if that's solid, it can give you a little bit more of a chance. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because for some folks, high volleys that are up near the shoulder are a little bit harder than the lower volley. I think I naturally think to kneel down, maybe, you know, put your knee on the court if you have to for a lower mm. volley, but for a higher volley, sometimes you, you, you naturally want to swing at it and you, you know, you push it out of the court or something. So that's not about getting down the same way. So what would you say in, when it's higher? Um, well, the high volleys are tough because it's, it has to do with a lot of upper body strength as well. You know, so like you have to use a lot of like your back and your shoulders and chest to be able to bring the ball down from when it's above your shoulders. Um, so, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's about for the high volleys. I think first you have to make a decision whether you want to hit a volley, a swing volley or an overhead because you have three choices. So that's number one. You have to decide what you want to hit. I mean, some people are more comfortable with hitting a swing volley than a regular like punch volley because they have more momentum and more strength to be able to hit, you know, over the ball. Um, but yeah, I mean, for the high volleys, it's pretty much about where you are on the court. If you're able to hit down or if you have to kind of go out more, just depending on where you are, if you're close, if you're close to the net, you know, you can pop easy. Give us some advice um, from the baseline on, on effective forehands and backhands. Hmm. You're giving me all these like really hard questions. This is your life. All... How is this? I know but it depends on the person. Like <laughs> it depends on what they're good at, what they're not good at. But okay. So the base, the base, everything starts with the feet, especially at the baseline. Um, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the hands and the arms and the technique and everything like that. But if you don't get where you need to be with the right spacing, then it doesn't matter what, is going on with all of this, all of this, all the hands. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The frillies. It gives like it gives it a little flavor. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, everything starts with the feet, and that's kind of what I've been able to deconstruct, even for myself. Like just kind of relearning how to move properly, how to move efficiently. Um. You know, being on balance, and then getting to my place being on balance when it's time for me to hit instead of hitting and moving. Um, so yeah, I mean, it starts with the feet really getting into position and being able to get where you need to go and being balanced when you get there. So it's, you, you have to get there, but once you get there, you're able to stop and you're able to do everything you need to do because you're, you don't want to hit and move at the same time. So you want to be able to get to your spot and be solid and steady and balanced so that you're able to transfer that weight like we talked about earlier. Um, so yeah, it, it starts with the feet. So, you know, if things are going off sometimes, you know, try and not necessarily forget about this part, but focus more, you know, on the lower half, on the legs and on the feet. Uh, that's fantastic advice. I find, I, I you know, I can't remember, are you two-handed back? You're one-handed back yeah. in. No, two-handed two back. See, I, I, I am two, and I find... With the forehand, because it's one-handed, there's a little bit more. You don't have to be perfect with the feet because there's more adjustment you can do with the two-handed backhand as opposed to the one-handed. You have to be in exactly the right position because you can't be reaching with two hands and hit an effective backhand. And that makes mm -hmm. the backhand that much harder. 
Yeah. When you have two hands, I mean, it's naturally you're restricted. You don't have as much, you know, range across, across your body. You don't have as much range backwards behind you. So yeah, you definitely have, you know, less options and less room for error with two hand backhands. But on the flip side, you have a little bit more stability because you have two hands on the racket. So, you know, less that can, you know, possibly go wrong. You're able to make adjustments. If you're late, you can use the, the top hand to try and bring it over. So it's, it's a good, it's good and bad. The hardest stroke in the game for me, I think for a lot of people is the kick serve. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice on the essentials of hitting an effective kicker? Um, I think on the kick serve, what I found is it's a lot about just your racket head speed a lot. I mean, like a lot of people sometimes will slow down the racket because they're trying to get it to, you know where you want it to go, but you can sometimes slow down your racket to get it there. And it's actually the opposite where you have to speed up. And that's always hard to do because you feel like if I hit this any harder, if I swing any harder, it's, um, it I'll, might fly. I'll miss. Yeah. Or it's going to go to the moon. That's what I say. So, um, yeah. So like finding that balance with the racket head speed of, you know, finding where it's comfortable for you, where you can really swing freely, but keep it in the court. And that's kind of like the hard part. And it just takes practice where you find that happy medium and, and everybody's is different. So take me to, I want to talk about two, you playing two of the greatest players of your era. You played Serena Williams, um, you know, who everybody loves and reveres. It was a tough match. I'm curious what it was that you felt playing her, what's the experience of playing her like? What is her ball like? Because some people have said she's not necessarily the hardest hitter on the tour, but she's going to hit more hard balls at you than anybody else. Yeah, well... When I played her, it was a big, like, psychological psych out almost, where it was like, you know, I'm playing Serena. So when I would typically stand, you know, maybe three feet behind the baseline, I'm standing six uh, because, you know, I'm like, I know that she hits a big ball. I know that it's going to be coming fast. So I need to give myself time and I need to give myself space so that I can, I can swing. So off the bat, I was adjusting. Is it harder than you? No. Is it harder than everybody else's ball? Not necessarily, but her accuracy is is like pinpoint, spot on, and that was the thing that I felt like. And the, the I mean, for sure, the serve by far, like on the women's tour, it's the hardest serve that I've returned. And and um, and, and the best return you've faced. Um. I mean, I, probably one of them. I mean, she can, it, it, there can be return errors that creep in, um, but not like with the weight of shot like that you talked about. The weight of shot off of the return is what draws errors where there's other females who play that may have more accurate returns, but they don't have the same weight of shot, which then you feel as though you're able to dictate or be in the point more. Um, but Serena, her weight of shot is like, it really makes you feel like, you know, you're pushing back. And it took me a couple of games to be like, okay, I'm not getting 
bang off the court. Like I can step in some and try and take, you know, take a back a little bit of the court that I've given away. Um, but that time it was a little too late. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think that was the biggest thing, but like, you know, her serve, I never felt like I was in any of the return games, which was difficult because then I felt a lot of pressure on my serve. Um, like a lot, like I have to hit these serves great and perfectly. And it was also because I knew that, you know, I wasn't getting any free points off her serve or I had to do something spectacular in order to get a point off of her serve. Um, so that was, that was really difficult, um, to deal with and manage because, you know, just when I think that she's, and I mean, everybody talks about it, how she's able to hit all of the spots from the same toss. So it was very, very hard to read. Um, so, you know, you start to lean or you try to cheat and it's gone the other way. So, um, you know, she's, she's the greatest in our game, you know, for a reason, but yeah, that's definitely what I felt the serve. The re- for me, returning her serve was very difficult and, and trying to gain ground in the point was really hard as well. And the movement is fantastic. So wherever you hit it, she's going to be on balance. Well, yeah. And she was, she was able to, for me, she was able to, to hit a lot of different angles. She was able to really generate like off court, you know, cross court angles or off court, you know, down the line winners and stuff like that on both sides. So it wasn't really like I could attack one side um, because both of them, you know, when I would try to hit and come in, you know, she was able to produce those angles so well in such extreme shots. I mean, it was like, it's nothing that you can do. So um, yeah, definitely. It's interesting that the serve is of such a high quality that it's putting pressure on your serve game. Cause you're like, I, I'm not getting anywhere over there. So I, you know, so she's in your head when you're serving, which puts more pressure on you and she's returning very well. So now mm-hmm. you're, you know, really behind. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what happened as well as, you know, the psychological part of like, Oh, I'm playing Serena, you know, that whole, that whole kind of thing that happens and, you know, yeah. But, so, when, but when you play Simona Halep, Right. You, you beat her at the U S open, right? Mm-hmm. She's one of the great players, you know, obviously not Serena's obviously the greatest of all time, but Simona Halep is one of the great players of this era. Were you not saying, Oh my God, I'm playing Simona Halep. No, because I had played her <laughs> three other times. I'm not, but you had not beaten her those three times. I hadn't beaten her, but it wasn't new anymore. Okay. Okay. So I had never played Serena before. So it was a totally new experience. Second night match on Ash, you know, following Federer. Like it was a lot that went into the moment. Okay. But for me, I had played Halep three other times, lost three times, not close, you know. So it was kind of like, all right, I knew how I lost. I knew what I was doing. So, and I went into the, when I played the first set, I played exactly the same way that I played all of the other matches. And this was like, okay, I got to change. Like something's got to give, something has to change. And um, that's kind of when I made that transition. To Which, what did you do differently in the second and third set? Um, I just decided, I was just like, you know what? I don't care if she passes me, but I was just like, I just need to do something different because I know that I'm not going to be able to beat her playing this way. Like I've done it three matches and now a set 
like, and I lost the first set, I believe six, three or six, two, something like that. So it wasn't close and it wasn't like she was under any pressure under any stress. And, and I could tell that it was very rhythmic, like, okay, I know exactly what to do. I know how to beat her. And that's, I mean, nothing changed each time that I played her, nothing changed. Nothing was different in terms of the game style and the game plan. Um, which was pretty much just, you know, waiting me out, moving me around side to side, you know, and waiting for me to miss. And that's what was exactly what was happening. So kind of just had a discussion with myself. I'm like, all right, something's got to give. So I was just like, screw it. Like, let me just try this. And, um, started doing the serving and volleying and just kind of committing to coming in. And like, I didn't care if I got past, like, I was just like, whatever. And, and the, the, Great thing was that I had four matches under my belt because I qualified that year, had to play three matches in qualies and then won my first round. So I had four matches under my belt. So I had gotten my rhythm and I was in my flow. So I was just like, you know, you just got to go for it. Just trust yourself. Like I literally said F it and the rest was history. That's an amazing attitude. Um, So can we talk about the USTA a little bit? Because they didn't really support you at one point in your career, you were number one in the world and they were like, yeah, we think you could be better. And the world who knows this story knows what they're really saying. We don't think you're really in shape. You're not the size of the girls that the size two girls were supporting, even though your results were way beyond everybody in the world, much less everybody in America. What really happened there? And how do you feel about what happened there? Well, I mean, you summed it up just now. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what happened. And, you know, I was competing against myself. I mean, there was nobody else that was having the results or doing what I was doing at that stage. And so I felt as though like I had pretty much earned my spot, you know, to, to play in our home slam at the U S open. And that would have been my first main draw, um, grand slam, you know, so what better place to do it than, you know, in the U S but, you know, in terms of how I feel, like looking back, at first it hurt, you know, you get emotional, especially considering that I was part of the program for three and a half years, you know, had dedicated, you know, my time, mental, physical, emotional energy, being away from my family. You know, I moved down to Florida, like I was by myself, like on campus. So I was away from my family and everything and made those sacrifices to try and give myself the best possible opportunity. Um, and kind of buy into the system and the program. Um, so at first, you know, as a 15 year old kid, you know, you're like, like, what the heck? You know what I mean? You're, you're, I was upset. I was sad. I was embarrassed as well because like something that was a personal insecurity of mine had now become like a global topic. So that was very difficult to deal with as well, because now, you know, I have people scrutinizing me and my game for a reason outside of tennis, you know? It wasn't, it could have had nothing to do with, you know, hitting tennis balls or the quality of how I was hitting and how I was playing. Everything started to be attributed to my size and my weight. And if I was in shape and if I looked a certain way, then that means that I was playing better. Or if I was looked a certain way, then I was playing worse. So it was just that dealing with that part was very difficult because I had to deal with it in, in a public setting. You know, I had to deal with it in the media. I had to deal with it. People asking me questions about it and very frequently at that. But now looking back, like at that time I was upset, I was sad, I was angry because it was just like, you know, it didn't make sense to me. 
Um, but now being older, being a mother, you know, having, you know, 10 years later, having 10 years of experience and being able to look back, I'm like, it's nothing personal. It's just business. Like, yes. Was it a shitty, you know, call and was it a terrible, you know, way to go about doing things? Yes. But at the end of the day, like they're a corporation, they're a huge entity that deals with a lot of money and, you know, things come down to dollars and cents imaging, you know, and it's business. So, you know, now I look at it as like, it's nothing personal. Like I have no bad feelings towards the USTA. Like, you know, I talk to Kathy Rinaldi all the time. She constantly checks on me and, you know, she was my coach for three, three years, pretty much. So, I mean, we developed a really, really tight and great relationship. So, um, you know, talk to her, you know, she always checks on me, asks if there's anything that she could do to help. Um, and I know that she tr- truly genuinely, you know, means it, which is great. So, you know, have, being able to put that behind and just, you know, be able to move forward. That's what matters. And for me, like, I didn't want to drag that out or to make it seem as though like I was angry or try and get something out of it. Like it happened. It is what it is. We're moving on. Like I'm in a different place, you know, they're in a different place, you know, in the, the program and things so from when I was there to even now the structure and things have totally changed. So, I mean, we're just all evolving. Has anyone indicated like, we're sorry, we shouldn't have done that. We made a mistake. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but it's fine. <laughs> like at the end of the day, like it is what it is, you know? And, you know, you, me speaking, me, I will, get my feelings hurt if I'm sitting around expecting an apology or, you know, something like that. Like we all know what happened. We all know that. Was it the right thing to do? No. Was it the right way to go about stuff? No. Was it fair? No, but it is what it is. So, you know, I'm not, I haven't, you know, I never expected it apology even back then. Like I didn't expect that because I'm just like, it is what it is. Honestly, my mindset then was just like, how can I move forward? Honestly, I was like, all I want to do is play tennis. I just want to go and play. Like, that's it. That's like, you know, all this other stuff. If you're there for three years, they knew you as a player. You were, Mm -hmm. I I assume you were in shape when it came time to run sprints. You could run sprints when it came time to play a two hour match or a three hour match. You could do that. Mm -hmm. You're not getting tired. Right. I mean, like Mm -hmm. my cardio is just as good as anybody else's out here. I'm not losing third sets because I'm getting tired. So, I mean, like, you you know who I am. Yeah. And that was the kind of disheartening part because, you know, when, before all of that came out, like I did like a six week training block, like double tennis, double fitness. Like I was like really putting in like a lot of work and we had took away all of my tournaments on purpose. Like I hadn't played tournaments in a long time to get in shape. So, you know, I'm like, in my mind, that's kind of, I remember thinking, I'm like, what can I possibly, like, what else can I do? Like, oh my gosh, like, I'm, what else? You know what I mean? Like, and you know, you get to a point where it's like, okay, you're doing all this stuff. And then you're, you're thinking, okay, to what end? Like, you know, when am I classified as being in shape? Like when, what is the end goal? What is the marker? And that was never identified. So you're just kind of on this kind of rat wheel where it's just like, you're just constantly going and going and going without, you know, an end in sight. So, I mean, yeah, 
I, I can't tell you, I've never lost a match because I was tired. I've never lost a match because I physically like couldn't go anymore. I've never lost a match because, you know, I just was gassed and I had nothing left in the tank. Like I've, like I can say that with all confidence. Like I've never lost a match because of those things. So, you know, the things that people attribute to being out of shape or like not conditioned, like that's, I've never dealt with that. And your card, I, I, I ask every pro I talk to about cardio because that's my personal biggest issue that I want to make sure that my cardio is as good as it can be. So, so mm -hmm. is it just a lot of sprints or is there something else that you're doing for your cardio? Well, everybody's different. Like my body type, Serena's body type is totally different than Sharapova and Wozniacki. So, you know, they could be running, you know, tens and 20 miles and that for their cardio can be amazing. But for me, someone like me, someone like Serena, where we're fast twitch, like we, we do sprints, you know, things that are going to get you quick off the block, things that are going to make you, you know, fast and you have to do a lot of them in order for you to get that, you know, constant, that endurance, you know, of course you do the steady state where you keep your heart rate up and you're just doing something for an extended period of time. But is that like my everyday cardio or is that how I, you know, base my training? No, because that's not sustainable for like me and my body type. Like I'm not going to go out and run 10 miles. That's not happening. But will I do sprints? Yeah. Cause that helps me that, that goes towards everything that I'm trying to do on court. And that's, what, so we, that's what we do. It's lots of short sprints. Yeah. I mean, it has to be functional based on, you know, your game, how you play, you know, and everything. And it has to be tailored towards you because, you know, the, the likelihood of me and Serena going out and running 10 miles every day or every other day or several times a week and us not getting hurt. That's not like, it's not possible. Like something's going to give eventually. Yeah. Like the wear and tear and the pounding and stuff is just, you know, for our body types, that's just not something that's smart. One last thing, uh, your superpower. What is the thing that you do better than other people that has led to the success that you've had? Um, I think my superpower is resilience. Um, I think my superpower is the ability to bounce back and to um, take situations that can be looked at as adversity and turn them around into something that's positive and something that is for my benefit. And I think that I've kind of displayed that throughout the course of my career. And, you know, even in the place where I'm in, where I'm at now, where, you know, I'm, I had a baby, you know, I had to have major surgery. I'd have a C-section, you know, been out for a year and some change. Um, but resilience, you know, bouncing back, you know, everybody talks about the bounce back when you have babies and stuff like that. But, you know, this is like a literal bounce back, you know, having to get back into the swing of things, getting back into the career, um, but not only getting back to where you were, but, you know, being better. And that's kind of what I identify as a bounce back. Like you pay, you were here when you left, but where are you when you're coming back? You know what I mean? And that was always my goal. You know, I was like, I want to be better than I left. And, and that's exactly where I'm at. Thanks so much to Taylor for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torrey Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. and Maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torrey and on Instagram 
at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editors, Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shonda Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. <laughs>